So we'll continue through the trek through Ephesians, and uh, I hope it's beneficial to you tonight. Um, yeah, I want to pray for us again before we get completely started. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, giving us the opportunity to look in your word. Um, I pray that you would be uh, with me as I, as I preach, uh, that I'd be uh, saying truth and saying it effectively, um, that you would be uh, working in me to uh, serve uh, these guys. And Lord, I pray that you would also be working in them to be able to receive the word and to look past any faults of mine um, and deal with you directly. Uh, in your name I pray, amen. All right. So we're in Ephesians 4. I'll let you open to that as I get started here. Um, yeah, my name is Adam. Uh, if you're new, I, uh, I don't go to SDSU here. I did for a while. I'm doing a seminary program, and I'm working in the schools and at Perkins. And so that's where, the, where I spend a lot of my time. Alright, so we all sin, right? Uh, we've been reading Ephesians, the first three chapters are primarily about what God has done for us. There's some really, really high praise for the things that God has uh, accomplished in us. And if you're reading that as a sinner, which we are, you're probably thinking uh, at some point that you're feeling very convicted that maybe you're not living in line with what's going on here um, with those first few chapters. Uh, if you're raised with Christ and seated with him and that we're this amazing church and this amazing family and amazing temple for God, um, why is it that we're still you know, doing all this sinning? Um, well, we have some answers for that elsewhere, uh, but I want to focus in on... Uh, how it is that you uh, can walk in greater obedience tonight. Um, we're going to read some commands tonight that are a really big deal. They're, they're massive commands. And we've all come up short on them. You, you know, even as Christians, we've been Christians for however long we've been. I guarantee you that we've transgressed almost all the commands today, probably even this week, um, if not you know, today. And they're commanded, and all of us know this, and we're, as Christians, we're fighting day in, day out to obey God. We want to believe Him. We want to walk in righteousness. Or we're, you know, struggling the fight and wearing out and drifting out of uh, an active walking with God. Um, so the desperate question of these weary believers that we are becomes how. This how is these, this rubbing point between command from Scripture and our ability and desire to carry it out. How is it that we go from, you know, mechanically, how do I do the things that God wants me to do, and how do I become the person that God wants me to be? Well, for us weary and frustrated, maybe even self-righteous Christians, Paul has a word for us today. So we're going to open to chapter 4 of Ephesians, um, verses 17 through 32. I do want to go back and catch... Uh, the transition verse, verse 1. Um, that's when the application for the, for the book starts. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, 
with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then jumping to verse 17. And this is our text for the day. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Assuming that you're taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So that's a tall order, and I think he gives us a way um, in here to follow those, those commands. So if we do have hope. Three points today. Uh, we're looking at uh, three different kind of levels of how we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Now the first one, uh, you should see on your sheets if you have one, what God has already done for us is the first level. We're also going to talk about what God has given us to put on. So God has given us something. And then finally, how it is that those things win us the war against our old selves. So, uh, the first point, what has God done for us? This is by far the most important thing. It's why um, the first three chapters of this uh, book is dedicated to it. We want to major on what God has completed for us. Our salvation from start to finish is a free gift of God. And it's not a surprise, then, that the first three chapters deal almost exclusively with that rather than what we should do, um, though now we are in the do section. I just want to take a, a montage of the different things that God has done for us before we look too deeply into this passage. Uh, notice in all these the past tense that it's already been accomplished for us. In chapter 1, verse 3, God blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, he chose us before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons. 
Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 22, all things are under Jesus' feet and we are his body. Chapter 2, verse 5, this is still going. We were made alive together, raised together, seated together with Jesus in heaven. Verse 8, we were saved by grace, not works. Verse 10, we are his workmanship and created anew for good works that we should walk in them. And those good works are prepared beforehand. 13, we have now been brought near to God. Verse 14 of chapter 2, Christ is our peace. Verse 16, we are all together one new interracial conglomerate man reconciled to God together. Verse 18, we have access to the Father. Verse 19, we are citizens and family members in a temple or dwelling place for God. In chapter 3, verse 12, we have boldness and access and confidence with God. Verse 13, the suffering of the saints is for our glory. In verse 19, we will be, this is the promise, we will be filled with all the fullness of God. So it would seem, as far as the first three chapters of the book are concerned, the how is taken care of. How do you live righteously? How do you be the person God wants you to be? Well, God seems to have completely taken care of it. It's almost a silly question. Part of, part of the reason for that is, is that it's the most important thing. It's the thing that God has done for us. It's the reason we're saved. Not any of our works or our strivings or efforts are why we are saved. It is God who came and saved us. He caused us to be born again, gave us a new nature. Whatever righteousness we attain is a gift plan from the dawn of time. Whatever sin remains is in its death rose. So God is, even as we walk earth, he's the victor. And all those things that are true of us from the first three chapters are more sure than tomorrow's sunrise. He will complete all of those things. So as far as the first three chapters are concerned, how is it that you walk in a manner worthy of this, this calling? The first most important crowning truth of all of it that you absolutely have to believe is that God has already given it to you. It's yours in Jesus. But we do need to talk about remaining sin. And that brings us to this second section. God has given us something to put on. Look at verse 17. How does Paul characterize our past selves? Uh, we, you know, we're, we're the nations, we're the non-Jews, we're the Gentiles. Um, so he's saying, this is the way you were. How does he characterize us? Pay, pay special attention to how focused he is on, this, on the mind, the, the mental faculties. In verse 17, feudal minds was our reality. The mind or the control center for the body uh, the seed of all of our thoughts and ideas and plans and the, the control center for all our desires, even our consciousness, is in the mind. And Paul is saying it was futile and empty. Yeah, yeah, it's thinking and it's planning and it's doing all the things that a mind does. But it's t if it was a car, it'd be like our tires are just spinning and just digging deeper as we go. It's just this futile effort, um, like it's stuck in the mud or something. Uh, and it gets worse than that. He goes on to say we, they were darkened in their understanding, 
is verse 18. So on top of getting nowhere and just spinning our tires and our brains, the part of the mind that interprets the world, that understands things, has no idea what's going on <laughs> apart from Christ. Uh, Paul Tripp argues that we are interpreters at our roots. So we have information coming in our eyes and ears, and it's uh, uh, rolling around in our heads for a while. And eventually it spits out some sort of interpretation of what's going on. And I think this understanding section is saying that our ability to uh, do that correctly is broken or darkened. So the information comes in, interpretation happens, and it's wrong. There are some philosophers over the last couple centuries that say that we can't learn any objective truth, that there's no answer to the ultimate questions of life, that we just kind of all have to figure out our own truth. They're kind of right in that, apart from Christ, their understanding is darkened and they're not going to get to the right answers to the best questions, according to this text. They were right about themselves. Uh, but in Christ, uh, that changes. But this is how we were, apart from God saving us. He goes on to describe them as callous. They have become callous in verse 19, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The word callous here refers to having lost feeling, um, so kind of the seared consciousness, conscience, uh, dead nerves, like you don't, the sense of touch is dulled all the way to nothing. It's completely numb. So then it's kind of interesting and ironic a little bit that then Paul goes and pairs it with sensuality. The callous and also given to the pursuit of senses. <laughs> You're numb, but also looking for pleasure. It's this ever-increasing hunger for an ever-unsatisfying pleasure. People can't feel, but they're just insatiably going after every evil feeling, every lust and every sensation of, you know, fleeting pleasure. You just go after because there's, there's just nothing substantial there. It's, you're calloused to pleasures. And I think, based on the previous sections, that you won't even know where to get pleasures if you uh, try that this, this, this desire, this, this uh, sensuality and greed to practice every type of impurity is the type that is untethered from any good truth. It just wanders looking for something, anything. And so that paints a really bleak picture of the unbeliever. But what's crazy is that this is the type of life that Paul is warning us against drifting back into or remaining in once we're Christians. So, so even with all the chapter 1 through 3 stuff being true, that you've been raised and that you're uh, yeah, born again, we still face, potentially, an experience of emptiness and futility. That's the old self, the old man that he's going to talk about in verse 22. We have an old man that is subject to futility and all manner of sensuality but can get nothing out of it. Thankfully, that is not the way we learned Christ, to quote verse 21. Look at those verses for a second. I'm just going to run through these and 
a little bit. You are taught in him to put off your old self and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So that's what we learned when we believed, that we have this new self and how to put it on, and this new self is created after the likeness of God. So what does this mean for our how question? How, how do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? What it means is that this, the second way that we can live in obedience to God is to put on a sort of a ready-made new self. It's like a piece of clothing, kind of, like a coat. God has already woven together this coat and decked it out, and then he's handed it over as like this finished product for us to put on. So we're putting on this new self, right? The new self in the text here also reminds us of his initial creation, which is very interesting. In Genesis 1, he created us in his image, and then it goes on, and we, we soiled and twisted the image through our sin. But this new self is this new creation after the likeness of God, his image, in true righteousness and holiness. It's really amazing. It's like we get to start all over again, except this time he's going to keep us. He's again truly our father, giving us good gifts. This new creation coat, if, if you will, it's a coat in, in this metaphor. It comes with everything. It's got all the, the fixings. Uh, we have a new self. We've got new desires. We've got new truths. And all these things together kind of keep us warm in the world that we're walking through. And we need to put on this new self-coat uh, that our Heavenly Father has gifted to us. But it raises the question again, how do I put that on? How do I keep it on? You know, once I put it on, am I going to take it off? You know, That leads us to the last point. You want to be able to keep that coat on, and you have to know how to put it on. The last point is that God's truths win the war in the battle for our minds. The old self, from verse 22, belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Deceitful desires. So I'm going to run through a few of these verses here. And I just want you to look at the role of the mind in these verses, just how much truth is mattering. Uh, he, goes, he goes, but that is not the way we learned in Christ. There's a mental word. We were taught in him. The truth is in Jesus. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Our new self's holiness and righteousness is of the truth. True holiness, true righteousness. Big focus on the mind here. So the question is, where is the battleground for truth and untruth? Another question to ask is, where did Paul say earlier that the nations, that the Gentiles, and we ourselves used to be futile and darkened? It's in our minds. It's in the mind that the old self grabs our desires, deceitful desires, and pulls us into evil. And it's in the mind where God now supplies us with the power for victory over sin and the ability to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We are called to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. So how does that work mechanically? 
He gave us these new desires and this new nature to put on, right? He's, he's already done this for us. He gives us new desires and we've put that on. And so now when we think about and believe the truths of the gospel, the new desires that God has given us can just run with it. We're no longer futile in our minds. We're no longer darkened in understanding. Our desires are no longer untethered to the truth. Our minds have become this battleground on which the war for our uh, uh, obedience is fought. And thankfully, uh, given that our uh, minds and the truth is what's required for us to put on the new self, uh, we just got done reading three whole chapters of truth. <laughs> Paul's just been stockpiling this ammunition for us. And from out of all that stuff, we get to use that as ammunition in this fight. So the way that we live out our calling is by winning these mind battles, using God's wonderful truths to overcome untruths that are also vying for our desires. And then when our new self desires can put that truth into practice, it all works together. Paul gives us some really good examples, I think is kind of how this next chunk should be read, verse 25 onward. They are commands, but with what God has already given us, they are also excellent examples of ways that God's triumph over sin can become practical obedience in us. Each of the coming verses gives an example of something to put off or put on, and it also gives a truth with a kind of a new nature exclusive desire that comes with the truth. And the end goal and the end design is that we would be supplied with all the energy and all the motivation that we need to go ahead and walk in a manner worthy of our calling, like we saw two weeks ago. So in verse 25, this is the first example, we'll do three of them. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. All right, here we go. Because of the new creation that you really actually are, put off your disregard for truth, and then put on a love of the truth, and beyond that, actively preach it to the brothers. So you're putting off the falsehood, putting on a truth, a truth that even speaks itself to neighbors. And then, what's, why, why would we do that? So, we need to figure out how to preach the truth into our mind that enables us to put off and put on. So, we put on the new self, our new desires. New nature responds with hunger to follow the truth. What do I mean? In verse 25, we put away the falsehood and actually become stewards of the truth because we are, as Christians, a single body and members of one another. Paul's been teaching this the entire letter so far. Uh, it's, you, you can miss it if you aren't paying super close attention, but I think Luke's done an excellent job of pointing it out. We... Uh, all, 
almost all these chapters are geared towards this unity with the church. And so he's been hammering into us this massive truth that we are members of one body with Christ as our head. And that is probably one of the most beautiful and glorious realities that God has purchased for us in Christ. We have each other. So when we put on this new self and we consciously hold in our minds, Jeff is my brother and Christ is our head. And that all those things have been purchased with Christ's blood and we're constantly meditating on those realities. It should terrify us then that we would want to introduce falsehood and lies and any type of like barriers and hiding between these members of the same body that Christ has bought for us. We want to do the actually the complete opposite. In addition to putting that off, we want to put on, we want to put on this unity, this love and uh, uh, a power to transcend any of the barriers of falsehood that we've set up to protect ourselves. We'd be motivated to increase our unity as a church with truth, with a deep regard for truth, and with openness with one another. So if I'm holding the truth of all that body membership in my head, how am I going to keep on building barriers and keep on erecting lies in order to protect myself in this way or that way or to hide or to... Uh, save some skin or whatever. If I'm holding that reality in my head, how is it possible then that I'll turn around and add falsehood to that union and try to rip it apart? I'm not going to. I'm going to turn around and proactively help my brothers and sisters uh, believe truth. So I'm going to be confessing sin and I'm going to be protecting the unity that Jesus bought. But it all starts in the mind after, after uh, God saves your course. Believing that we are members of one another. We can do it again in verse 26. Uh, they're basically all the same pattern in this section. Uh, this is verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So what are we putting off? We're putting off the sinful version of anger, the one that lingers turns into grudges. It's got a self-preservation thing going on. There's a vengeance in it. And I think the put-on thing is implied, but it says be angry and do not sin. Uh, that's very. We could talk about that a lot more. Maybe you want to in your small groups. But I think we should have a righteous indignation that we should love what God loves and also hate what God hates. We get angry at the things that he is angry at. Um, and so we're putting on this righteous anger and putting off this evil rage and anger. But why are we? Why would we do that? What is the motivating truth? It's less clear than the first one, but I think the format shows us that the the reason that we would do that is so that we can deny Satan an opportunity, a place in us, or a foothold. So surely this means, partly at least, that we should be glad to be defending against spiritual attacks and as an individual and as churches be safe, you know, like, like uh, you know, skinning your teeth type of thing. But there is something else that we've been kind of glossing over actually in Ephesians, till, uh, and I think it's kind of coming to a head here. Um, it's Paul's 
uh, he's concerned that the spiritual realms see the glory of God, especially the enemies of God. This is chapter 1, verse 21. Christ is seated above all the powers, uh, pointing to uh, the devil and his minions. Chapter 2, verse 2, we used to follow the prince of the power of the air, and that's part of the glory of what God has achieved, that he's uh, taken us out of that slavery. It's not just that we're out of slavery, it's that something's been taken away from the prince of the power of the air. But mostly, especially, chapter 3, verse 10. The reason that God does these things is that the manifold wisdom of God would now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's not referring to governments. That's referring to spiritual authorities. So Paul, in addition to the church's safety from, uh, uh, from you know, demons and, and Satan, which he'll get into in the next chapter, he, or two chapters from now, he also gets really excited about triumph over the devil. And it's really interesting. Why would you control? Why control your anger? Why not sin in your anger? A strange way to think of it is that so you can, uh, so to speak, dunk on Satan. Is that's a strange, but it's incredible truth. Like we're not helpless creatures just living in terror, though we need, you know we need armor and we need to fight and things like that. We are, but we are one spirit-filled church created again in the likeness of God. And true righteousness and true holiness. And this time, unlike the first time we went up against Satan in the garden, we're not going to eat the fruit and receive the curse of death. We will dwell as Christians with God forever, and Satan and his minions will be judged. And so even now we have the first fruits of that reality. We can deny Satan an opportunity, a foothold. So how can I focus on feeding the fire of anger when my mind has transported me into that spiritual realm? And I don't mean like literal transportation. I mean like you're using your mind. You're actively using your mind and your imagination and your, your, uh, uh, all of your mental faculties to dwell on this idea that God has utterly won the war of all spiritual realities. And I get to be a part of this. And so when I'm angry at the things that God is angry at, I don't let sin creep in. Why? Partially because I want to join with God in doing like these victory lap type of things over uh, Satan's influences in the world. Um, you know, he prowls around like a roaring lion, and it's not to diminish uh, Satan's continued influence. But part of the reason why we would be uh, want to not sin in our anger is to block an opportunity from Satan here and, and you know just never allow a thing. You're to totally shutting him out. And there's, there should be some sort of pleasure in denying him that, that we're, we're on God's side and God has brought us onto his side. And so I'm not going to give sin a single opportunity in my anger. The third one, skipping to verse 31 and 32, uh, this is the big one, <laughs> uh, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So what do you put off? 
He put off all types of fighting with one another, both the loud and the silent stuff, the, the quiet grumbling and the, the, the big yelling. And then you put on kindness and tenderness, and that's the type of kindness and tenderness and forgiveness that only comes from being forgiven. Christians are going to disagree. We do disagree. Christians will sin. In those difficulties, calling, the calling for us is to forgive one another. Why? Like, we're going to really mess with each other sometimes. Like, uh, there's, the closer you get to somebody, the more open you are to seriously being sinned against by them. And Paul is saying, get really close to the church. So, we're going to sin against each other, and sometimes it'll be a really big deal. It, it's going to be hard at some time to forgive. So why or how are we going to be able to forgive somebody for a serious sin against us? We're going to have to hold it in our minds, the fact that God has forgiven us much first. This is the biggest reason of all of them. I think this ties the rest of them together, that we're acting out of a gratitude and an acknowledgement of what God has already done in us. The truth is you have been forgiven much. And you got to hold that in your head and, and use it as much as you can and creatively when you're dealing with other people. Because if God has <laughs> spared you a massive debt, how can you uh, not spare others a lighter debt? So what you should be holding in your mind is this picture that God is... Uh, has God, the Almighty God, the Holy God, has your entire life against you and His hand is coming down to crush you. And at the last minute, He turns it away and, and, and lands it on His Son, but He's forgiven you. And you've got that running through your head and you're meditating on it and you're thinking about it as you're dealing with people. How is it then that you're going to hold something against somebody else? How are you not going to be tender-hearted and kind if you're constantly thinking over what God has done for you in forgiveness. So you want to be using your mind so actively in those ways and, and being in, in a place where you're contemplating what God has done for you in his forgiveness of the wrath that he has against you, the righteous wrath. So whatever fight you have against the brothers and sisters, against your neighbors, um, even non-Christians, that should melt away if you're using your mind like Paul is calling us to use it today. So, uh, to close, where is your mind struggling with sinners? Where is my mind when I struggle with sin? Our new, our new desires are waiting for direction. God has given us a new heart, a new, uh, a new creation self, with, complete with new desires. It's waiting to be met with a truth to believe and to practice. God's word is just replete, just filled with glorious truths for us to dwell on. And in doing so, I think we'll find that God has provided a way for us to follow him, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We don't have time to do all the verses in this section, so I do want to encourage you guys to uh, do basically this, what we've been doing with the ones I didn't mention as practice, whether tonight or in small groups or whatever. Um, I think it's just good practice in general to... Uh, Try to think about uh, messages after it's out of the context. You know, like after church on Sunday, talk with your buddies about 
what, you know, what Gavin was talking about, or you know, tonight after what, after the, after this, go home and talk about the text. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I want you to encourage you to do that. Do it with the rest of the verses in this area, and then do it with all of your desires and all your sins. Find truths that correspond and motivate because of the thing that God has done for you. Uh, you to follow him and to obey him. So how are we going to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? You take all that God has given you, this new creation self, and all the truths in his word, and then you wage war in your mind over the roots for your desires. You root all of your desires in good gospel truth. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving uh, us the opportunity to look at this text. Thank you for the opportunity to get together and be with each other and, and learn from each other. So Lord, I pray that you would do that again um, as we break into small groups, that you would give us uh, sharp minds and active hearts that we could be um, really seriously moved and changed by your word here, that it would not just be um, words going through ears or another night that it would be a, a moment for you to work mightily Lord I thank you that you have communicated to us and that you have done amazing things for us we pray that we would never forget those things in your name we pray, amen <laughs>